And if you've been here the last couple months, we've been doing a series that we've been called Open Your Eyes. And it's one of those things that's very dear to my heart because I believe that the church is not ever supposed to be just inward. A lot of times we can just make this thing about us and what happens within these four walls and and, and we kind of come in and out of this kind of Sunday morning um, Christian mindset when really this is not at all what it's supposed to be about. We're called to be followers of Jesus Christ and uh, to go out into the world and to be his disciple in the world that God has put us into, into every man's world. Wherever God has placed you, you're to be his light and, and arms outstretched. So we've been going through the book of Isaiah chapter 58 and it's an amazing chapter. There's so much jam-packed in it. And we've been going through this series just looking at how it really is a radical shift to how most of us tend to live our lives. We tend to live it too internally. And so we've been talking through this series about this. And if you've missed any of these series, I would encourage you to go online, listen to them. Um, because I think this is why we are here as a church. This is why God's brought you. This is why he's working in your life. You are there to make a difference. Your life matters. Your life counts. And God has a purpose and a call on your life to make a difference. And I mentioned last week that I have a, a friend that's in town here. Um, his name is Gary Skinner, and he's going to speak to us here this morning. We've known each other for 20 years now. We were talking about this last night. I like, surely it can't be 20 years. I'm not that old. Um, and we were counting back, and it's unfortunately 20 years that we have um, uh, kind of lived life together. But I first met Gary in Colorado Springs, Colorado, when I was on staff at a church there, and I ended up hiring him um, as part of my pastoral team and what we were doing. And uh, one of the reasons why I hired Gary, and I love him so much, I was telling our, our, our staff here that there's probably a handful of people that I can count just on one hand that I admire and respect their relationship with God and their ability to hear God. He is one of them. And so I am thrilled that you're going to be able to listen to him here. He has an incredible story, what God has done and is continuing to do. God continues. He has a, a unique way of ministering to people who are in prisons and families who are, have um, family members who are in jail or in prisons, and God keeps using them that way. You can see on the, the little handout um, some of the things that he is involved with, and you'll hear some more of those, those stories. But we talked about a couple weeks ago that as one chapel, we're starting a one chapel dream center in, in Austin. And the whole vision of the Dream Center is to reach out to those who aren't being reached and to look at the forgotten and the marginalized and the downcast and, and those who are outcasts. And when you think about those who are in prisons and jails, they really are a lot of our forgotten in society. They really are a lot of the outcasts who are in our society. And, and so you'll hear him talk about some of that along with his story. But if you would, please put your hands together. I want you to welcome my friend, Pastor Gary Skinner. Yeah, thank you, Russ, or Pastor Russ. And, uh, <laughs> well, um, so good to be here today. Um, I'd like to begin with Jeremiah 29:11. It's going to go on the screen there. It says, "For I know the plans I have for you," says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. And I wanted to start with that today to just kind of give you uh, a feel of where I was uh, several years ago. First of all, in uh, 1991 um, was a time of my life that was pretty difficult, and I had come to the conclusion that that verse was not for me. I definitely believed it was a true verse. I believed it was from God. I believed it was real, but I didn't believe it applied to me because I had done some pretty foolish things and messed up my life. 
Anyway, um, I have a book out there if anybody's interested. I'm not here to really push a book, but it does have some great things we've used in it in a lot of prisons and a lot of different other contexts to uh, help evangelize or lead other people to the Lord or to give them encouragement and hope. I'm not going to tell you my whole story today. I've, I've got a little section I'm going to share. And uh, even as I'm doing this, it's uh, interesting to me each time I do it, because most of the places I do it is in prison, okay? So um, I'm going to try and keep things uh, in, in a way that uh, will connect with you, because um, a lot of things I can make these little side jokes, and they think it's funny, and then I try it with my own church, and they're like, that's not funny. <laughs> anyway, so <clears throat> anyway, um, uh, I'm going to begin uh, in kind of the, the middle of my life. Uh, it was, uh, I was 36 years old. It was July 31st, 1991. I was sitting in my attorney's office with my wife, Susan, and uh, we were getting ready to go across the street to the courthouse where I was going to be sentenced. Um, I had already pled guilty to uh, what they called aggravated theft. This was, took place in Dayton, Ohio. And I'd never been in trouble before in my life. I had no idea how the system worked. I had no idea about, you know, uh, plea bargains and all the things that goes on within the system itself. And in fact, I didn't even know for sure why it had to have gotten this bad because uh, in my mind, I had never intended to be in trouble like this, obviously. Um, it wasn't something I thought about doing someday. Um, but what happened was the short version is I was partners in a finance company with a friend and um, I had used kind of the, uh, the system of uh, taking uh, from, you know, they call it uh, borrowing from Peter to pay Paul, only I stole from Peter to pay Paul. So, and it's okay to laugh if you think that might be funny, okay? <laughs> You're not going to hurt my feelings. Um, I didn't even know what aggravated theft was. I found out later that uh, usually to have an aggravated charge means that you uh, have a weapon involved. And uh, yet in my case, it was, there was no weapon involved. It was white-collar crime. And uh, so then I looked a little deeper and found out that if you steal over $100,000, it's an aggravated charge. And so my conclusion was that uh, if you steal more than $100,000, somebody gets really aggravated. <laughs> okay, that's the one I didn't think was going to work in here. <laughs> so anyway... Um, I had worked out everything with my attorney, and, and as I said, it wasn't supposed to get this far. It was supposed to be just me and my partner sitting down and working out restitution. Uh, that got uh, unraveled, and then it became a thing where they got attorneys involved, and it was going to be a civil case, and then they de decided to turn it over to the state of Ohio to come after me criminally. And uh, once that happened, uh, everything just went uh, haywire. Um, now, since I was a first-time offender, it was white-collar crime, my attorney assured me there was nothing to worry about. Um, I'd get five years probation, and uh, yet, then I'd have to work out. You know, I'd have a felony on my record, but I'd be able to work things out and go about my life. So we're sitting there in Dayton, Ohio with him, and he says, we're going to go across the street, Gary, it's no big deal. You're going to go before the judge, they're going to ask you some questions, there'll be some paperwork to fill out, and then you and your wife can go back home to Colorado and then we'll work the other part out later. I said, okay, great. So my wife and I we, and my attorney, we go across the street, we go into the courthouse. Uh, my attorney says, here, the, the two of you sit here. I'm gonna go back into the judge's chambers. I've got a couple of things I need to tie up there, and then I'll be out just a couple of minutes or so, and then we'll get this over with. <clears throat> so we're sitting there, and two minutes go by, and 10 minutes go by, and 15 minutes go by. It's well over 20 minutes, and I'm getting a little nervous. Finally, he walks out, and he's walking toward me, and he doesn't look very, very good at all. Um, he's got kind of a, 
well, he's white as a sheet, and he won't look at me at all. So uh, he finally gets over to where I am. He sits down, and I turn to him, and I said, uh, well, what happened? And uh, he said, it didn't go so good. And I said, uh, yeah, you're not supposed to laugh at this part. <laughs> I said, um, what do you mean? He said, it, it just didn't go so good. Well, what's going to happen? Well, just, just go up there when they call your name. We'll figure this out. And uh, so um, the whole thing is kind of foggy as far as what took place exactly. I do remember this. I do remember standing at a podium. I remember looking up at the judge, and I remember hearing her say to me, by the power vested in me by the state of Ohio, I hereby sentence you, Gary Skinner, to four to 15 years to the state penitentiary. Bailiff, take him away. I remember that part. And uh, so they handcuffed me, they took me down a hallway, and I went through a processing, you know, fingerprint and picture and all this stuff. And then they put me in a jail cell. And as I said, I've never been in trouble before. I didn't, uh, um, some people said, have asked me, were you scared? I said, no, I was just confused. I didn't really know what was happening. And, and it was a very difficult uh, thing, obviously. Um, I uh, remember just uh, trying to put the pieces together. Uh, there was no excuse for me to be there. You see, I was raised in a Christian home. I've been going to church. I've been going to Bible study. I've been leading Bible studies, okay? And uh, yet I had this one area of my life. It was kind of compartmentalized away, and I hadn't dealt with it. I definitely hadn't dealt with it in the right way. And so uh, this was the consequences of some really, really foolish decisions. Now, I remember in the, in the jail cell that night just calling out to the Lord and said, uh, wow, um, I really blew this. And uh, I hate how this is. And Lord, please don't let me die in here. Don't let this be my future. I mean, don't let this be my legacy. Don't let this be what my kids think of when they think of me. And uh, anyway, it was a pretty tough day that day. I you know, drifted off to sleep finally, got up the next morning, and um, just still trying to put the pieces together. There's another little tiny thing here that's kind of interesting uh, to me anyway, and it was that, uh, you know, as I'm thinking about that verse, God has a plan, you know. And I thought often during that time about how when I was 10 years old, I was sitting in a church service and I felt like, I felt very strongly God had spoke to my heart and he called me into the ministry. And uh, I hung on with that for two or three years, but by the time I was 18, I talked myself out of it. And I wasn't out pursuing evil. I just was making bad decisions and, and uh, just wasn't, you know, my, my attitude about the whole thing was, uh, and I didn't even see it as being a wrong attitude. I think it was just a misunderstanding. I had embraced Jesus as Savior but I had not really embraced him as Lord. And my idea of embracing him as Lord or even in that relationship was, okay, he gave me a brain. I'm going to come up with things I think are good for my life, things that I like to do, things that I think I would uh, be good at. And then I'm going to ask him to bless my plans. And uh, as I was in that jail cell thinking that through, I came to, my, to the realization that I really had that upside down. I really needed to be continually going to him and say, hey, Lord, is this what you want me to do? And how do I do this, etc." So anyway, that next morning I woke up and I was looking in the, the mirror. That it wasn't really a mirror, it was a piece of tin, but you kind of look in there and get a little reflection. And, and I remember it was a very surreal moment for me because I was so torn up inside and, and just wondering what my future is going to be. And I remember looking in, in that mirror and I said, look, talking to myself, I just said, uh, how did this happen? How did you do this? 
And then uh, for some reason that uh, old Frank Sinatra song came to mind. I did it my way. <laughs> and I know this is weird, but I actually started laughing. I'm going, that's silly. But then I didn't laugh. It was kind of like, yeah. Anyway, you had to be there, but you weren't. So, uh, anyway, um, you adjust. You figure these things out. You do the best you can. I was in the county jail for seven days. Then they moved me to another facility for 36 days where I was classified. Then they sent me to my permanent address, which was London, Ohio. It was a very old prison built in the early 1900s, and it was extremely overcrowded. I was uh, told that the prison was originally built to house uh, about 900 men, and we had over 2,400. So uh, everywhere you went, it just was wrong. It was just, it was crazy, it was wild. I was in a dormitory, there was 187 men in my dorm, and from uh, 7 in the morning to 11 o'clock at night, it was absolute chaos. And uh, once again, very difficult for me to adjust, but you figure out how to do these things, and so you, you move along because you have no choice. And uh, during that time, I'd really been pressing into the Lord, really been seeking Him. And, and actually, I felt like I was doing pretty good with the Lord before I went to county jail um, because I thought He and I would settled the issue and that, you know, He was, had forgiven me, He loved me, everything was going to be okay. And, and I believe that's true, except the state of Ohio had a different plan. And so uh, anyway, um, after I'd been there for a couple of months, I found out that I was eligible for what they called shock probation. And it's because of my low security, first time offense, etc. And you apply through the courts. I applied. I, I was rejected. Uh, then six months later, I found out I was eligible for what they call shock parole. And this was better for me than the, the, the judicial system because now my uh, fate was in the hands of the parole board instead of the judge. And so the parole board, they were looking, all the prisons were way overcrowded. They were looking for many ways, or just about any way, to release people early because, if they weren't a danger to society because they were just needing more beds for the others. So anyway, I, I went before the parole board, and the way it worked in Ohio at that time is they had, I think, nine parole board members, and they would come to each uh, prison facility once a month, and they would divide up into groups of two or three. Then the parolee, you know, would, would go in front of them, the possible parolee, would go before them. They'd talk about their case, and then they'd tell them what's, what's going to be. So um, I walked into a classroom, and there were two parole board members, two men sitting behind a, you know, behind a table. And uh, there was a chair in the middle of the room. Uh, and I walked in. They very, very polite. Mr. Skinner, have a seat. I sat down. We started talking about my case. We didn't get into the discussion more than two, three minutes before they stopped. They looked at each other, and then one of them said, uh, stay right here, we'll be right back. So they left the room, they came back a couple minutes later, and they said, well, Mr. Skinner, your, um, your case is a lot more complicated than we thought it was. Uh, we're not going to be able to make a decision today. What we need to do is we'll be back in 30 days, and uh, we'll set a time then for you to meet with the entire parole board. They will interview you, and then we'll make a decision at that time. And I said, uh, well, we don't need to wait 30 days. I'm ready right now. <laughs> and they said, no, that's not how it works. And I said, okay. So um, went back to the dorm, asked some of the guys, and they said, uh, this could be good news, you know, because if it was bad news... They could have told you that today. So I was very optimistic. 30 days go by, I go to the parole board. It's the entire parole board there, all of them, uh, sitting around these tables. And I'm sitting in the middle of the room again. And they start doing the questioning. And then basically asking me, you know, what happened here? What happened there? Why this? Why that? 
And uh, I had no intention of doing anything except tell the truth. I'd been telling the truth all along. I just wanted this to be over with. I wanted to move on with my life. And so uh, it was pretty easy from the standpoint, they ask a question, you just tell the truth. However, when you're thinking about, wow, if, if I get this wrong, if I mess this up, I might not get to go home. When you start thinking in those ways, you get a little nervous. And I was extremely nervous. And I don't know if this ever happened to you before or not, but somebody asks you a question when you're in a nervous situation and you say the answer and after it comes out, you go, ooh, that is not what I meant to say. I don't know ever happened to you before, but this started happening to me. <laughs> and uh, the great news is there was this lady, one of the parole board members, her name was Mrs. Jackson, and she uh, came to my aid on a couple of occasions. She would stop me and say, hold it, Mr. Skinner, um, you just said this. But didn't you mean to say this? Yes, that's exactly what I meant to say. <laughs> so uh, anyway, we get through the questioning. I leave the room for the take their vote. They invite me back in. The parole board president says, well, congratulations, Mr. Skinner. We're going to be giving you shock parole. It takes 60 days to process your paperwork, but you'll be going back home to Colorado in two months. So I was very, very excited. Went back to my dorm, got out a piece of paper, and made my own calendar of 60 days. And uh, that's what I look forward to every day, you know, crossing off those days. Gary's going home, Gary's going home, Gary's going home. Three days before I was supposed to go home, I get a letter from the parole board, and they said they wanted to review me again in 30 days. Well, that can't be good. So I wait that out. I go back at the end of the 30 days, go into the same room, same parole board members, everything's the same. They're asking the same questions. I'm giving the same answers. So I'm thinking they just needed some reassurance. The only thing that bothered me a little bit was that the parole board president kept asking things in a way that it felt like he was trying to trip me up. But I still, I thought, it's going to be fine, you know? So they asked me to leave the room. They have their vote. I come back in, and the parole board, parole board president says, well, Mr. Skinner, we've decided to revoke your parole. And uh, <laughs> that's kind of what I said. Ah. <laughs> I said, wow, um, can I ask a question? And he said, sure, ask anything you want. And I said, um, well, I don't get it. Um, I've done everything I've been told to do. I've followed all the rules. I've answered all your questions honestly. I don't have any outstanding cases, no outstanding warrants. I've done everything I know to do to be a model inmate, to be doing it just like everybody says. And uh, a couple months ago, you said I can go home, and now you say I can't. What happened? And he said, we changed our mind. And uh, didn't have a real answer for that. I do remember looking around the room, seeing if I could kind of resurrect this situation. And so I didn't say anything, but I would kind of look, I'd look at each one of the parole board members, you know, one at a time to see if they'd kind of, you know, kind of like, can you help me out here? <laughs> Just could you speak up any time now? And then I looked at Mrs. Jackson. Each one of them, every time I looked at them, they would either drop their head or look away. And I looked at Mrs. Jackson thinking, surely she has something to say. But uh, she dropped her head as well, and I knew it was done. So um, they dismissed me, I, and I left the room, went back to the dorm, and made a phone call I did not want to have to make to my wife, Susan. And uh, I called her. She was at work. She took the call, and I said, well, Susan, they, uh, they took it away. And there was this silence. And I thought... It was pretty long silence. It was probably just a few seconds. It seemed very long. And finally she said, I can't talk. I've got to go. Click. 
so at that moment, I would say I clearly felt like I'd lost everything. And it was so difficult for me to connect the dots in my mind because I'd been seeking God, I'd been praying, I'd been reading the Bible, I'd felt like I was closer to God than I'd ever been in my life. I felt like the parole was an answer to prayer. He was blessing me. I had favor. Everything's working now. I'm going to be able to get things back. Everything's going to go great. And it just, just was sucked away. It was just gone. And then my wife, wow, I don't think she's going to make it. And I remember going out on the yard. There was no place to be by myself. So I remember going out on the yard and finding kind of a little area where it wasn't crowded. I'm just walking around. I'm talking to the Lord. And I says, wow, Lord, this is a big blow today. And I just don't get this. And and I, I just, this doesn't make any sense, and, and I don't know what we're wrong, and I, are you upset with me? What did I do? And just all kinds of thoughts going through my mind. And then I said kind of a really strange thing. At the time, I felt it was strange because I don't, I, I, actually what happened is I felt like I said things that bypassed my brain. It's like I didn't think it through. I just started talking and saying things. And, and one of the things I said is, uh, well, Lord, I just uh, want you to know that... Um, if my wife leaves me, it's okay. And if I don't get to see my kids, it's okay. And um, if I um, have to do the whole 15 years, it's okay, as long as I have you. And um, I took a breath. I said, well, Lord, thank you that I can breathe. And I took a step. I said, Lord, thank you that I can walk. And I moved my arms. I said, Lord, thank you that I can move my arms. And I went into this crazy prayer of thanksgiving, tears streaming down my face. I started thanking God for everything. I started thanking him for birds and trees and flowers and concrete and razor wire. It was a really crazy <laughs> prayer. Okay? And so uh, um, what I would like to say is at that moment, I sensed the Spirit of the Lord just come and comfort me. Just comfort me. That's what I would like to say. Um, but I didn't feel anything. felt like he was a million miles away. I felt like everything I just said was just kind of going up here and dropping to the ground. And um, so, you know, it's not good to cry in prison, so I cleared, cleaned myself up and went back to the dorm and uh, laid down on the bed, and I was just rehearsing what had happened through the day, all the things that took place, and, and uh, trying to figure out what, what had happened. And, and even probably the biggest thing that bothered me is that I didn't sense the closeness of God. And then all of a sudden, something resonated within me, and I'm not sure I can explain it very well here today, but what happened was I realized that I had just responded perfectly to my situation, and I hadn't really thought about it. That's why I say it bypassed my brain. Um, I would interpret that today, many years later, that that was the work of the Holy Spirit in me, that he was uh, changing me even in ways I didn't know, and I was even learning how to respond. And uh, so uh, something happened with me that day. Once again, difficult for me to explain, except that I knew from that day forward I didn't have to feel his presence. Now, I've had many occasions where I've felt his presence, I've felt his closeness, I've felt his comfort. That day I didn't, but it didn't matter anymore. I knew he was with me. I knew he'd never leave me. And because of that, the rest of my life started unfolding in an amazing way for me because I've never, ever doubted him. I never question him. When I don't get what I want, I don't question him. I just say, well, that's okay. He's got something else going on. He sees the bigger plan. He's running this thing. I just need to get in there and figure out how to cooperate with what he's doing. Anyway, so um, 
Went to sleep that night, called the next morning to my wife. I had a really good speech to talk her into sticking with me, and uh, it was really good. And uh, she answers the phone, you know, she took the call, and I said, uh, before I could even say anything, she said, well, Gary, you know, we're not going to let this beat us up. We're going to get through this. I'm going to stick with you. We're going to keep praying on the phone. We're going to keep seeking the Lord. I'm going to stick with you. Even if you have to do the whole 15 years, we're going to get through this together. And I said, wow, that's not how it sounded yesterday. <laughs> and she said, what do you mean? I said, well, yesterday, when I told her they took the parole away, you said you couldn't talk. You had to go, and you hung up. She said, I was at work. I couldn't talk. I had to go. <laughs> so, anyway. <laughs> One of the things I did start praying for shortly after that was to be changed from where I lived to a different facility. There were many facilities. On that property, there were two. There was the one where I was in, which is behind the fence. And then there was one on the outside, which was no fence, and it was called the farm camp. And uh, I wanted to, I was hoping someday to be able to get out there because you get a job, your time goes better, the food's better, you get ketchup and mustard. And so um, it just a lot of good things to look forward to. So I went to bed uh, one night uh, shortly after this, and I just started praying. I said, Lord, you've been good to me. You've always taken care of me. You've kept me safe. And I appreciate all you have done and that I have you. But if there's any way I could go out back, I sure would appreciate it. Went to sleep, woke up the next morning. The, the, the guard comes by, slaps the side of my bed, and he says, Hey, Skinner, pack your things. You're going out back. <laughs> really? Well, that sounds good to me. So I'm out back. They give me a job in the dairy barn uh, milking cows. Wasn't too excited about that. But uh, it was what it was, and I was thrilled to be out uh, of where I was. It felt more free. It felt better. Everything felt like I was moving in the right direction. And I was out there, and I kind of made a promise to myself that I would not complain. No matter what, I'm not going to complain. I'm just thankful that things are getting better. And so I was out there working in the dairy barn, uh, milking the cows, and for some reason, apparently getting down, getting up, getting down, getting up, my knees started to really hurt, and I didn't understand that, but it was hurting. And so I looked around, and I noticed there's some other guys that worked out there that never milked the cows. They would just, like, put some straw out, and they'd pick up some, you know, the manure and put it in a, in a manure spreader or something. Not still anything great, but it seemed better than what I was doing. Maybe I wouldn't have any pain. So I went to bed that night, and I said, Lord, I'm not complaining. I'm really not. I love what I'm doing. I love being out here. But my knees are starting to hurt. And I was just wondering if there's any way you could work it out where I could work with those other guys instead of, uh, you know, milking the cows. I sure would appreciate it. Got up the next morning, went out to the dairy barn. Uh, the CEO calls me over and says, hey, Skinner, you've been milking cows long enough. Why don't you go work with those guys? Really? Well, that's pretty good. So I was working with those guys for a few days, and I noticed there's this other inmate driving by on a little tractor with a little wagon. And uh, in that little wagon, <laughs> he just had these little sacks of feed. And, and uh, I had to say to the guys who'd been there longer, I said, well, who's that? What does he do? And they said, that's tractor driver. He's got the best job out here. And I said, uh, really? And they said, uh, yeah, he just drives around, uh, drops off those sacks of feed. He can go anywhere on the property he wants. It's, it's, it's really the best job out here. So I went to bed that night and I said, Lord, I'm not complaining. I like to work for these other guys. Everything's going great. And uh, I appreciate all that's, that's happening there. But if I could be tractor driver, I sure would appreciate it. Went to sleep, got up the next morning, went out to the dairy barn. The CEO calls me over and he says, hey, Skinner, do you know how to drive a tractor? I says, as a matter of fact, I do. Well, Joe's going home in a couple of weeks. How would you like to be tractor driver? I said, well, I'd like that just fine. Well, get out there with Joe. He'll show you the ropes, and you can be the tractor driver. 
So I'm out there driving the tractor, feeling pretty good, you know, best job in the place. All of a sudden, I have this thought, I need to ask for bigger stuff. So I went to bed that night, <laughs> and I said, I said, Lord, I love being a tractor driver, but if there's any way I could go home, I sure would appreciate it. See, one of the things I didn't tell you is as I was finishing with the parole board meeting, one of the things they said to me as I was walking out the door is to not worry. Don't worry, Mr. Skinner. We'll review you again in two years. So I knew it was two years before I was going to be doing anything. But nonetheless, I thought I'd ask. And so I went to bed that night, uh, got up the next morning, nothing. <laughs> so, um, however, I got a letter in the mail. And it was not one of those, hi, how are you letters. It was actually a letter from a friend in Colorado, and it was a transcribed sermon on 1 Corinthians 13. If you're familiar with that, it's the love chapter. And love is this, love is this, love is this. And there was this one line in there that says, love keeps no record of wrong. And uh, you see, there's a part of the story I haven't shared, and that is that my partner Randy, he and I were close friends at one time. And I felt like it was his fault that I was in prison. Yes, I had done wrong, and that part is all absolutely true, absolutely guilty. However, I felt like we could have handled it differently. And I felt like it was his fault that it didn't get handled differently. I wasn't even that angry that I was in prison. What bothered me the most is how it was affecting such as, you know, causing such a strain on my family. And so I had some, what I would say, uh, you know, anger and bitterness and unforgiveness towards him. And as I'm reading through this sermon, I, and I'd read these verses many times even after I'd been in prison. For some reason, it just clicked. And the Holy Spirit started speaking to me. I've never heard God speak audibly, but it was as clear as could be. Just that voice, that still small voice in my heart. And uh, I sensed the Lord say, you know what, Gary? Um, the problem here is not Randy. The problem here is you. Um, yeah, maybe Randy didn't do it the way you think he should have done it, but he wouldn't have been put in a position to make the decisions he made if you hadn't did, done... <laughs> yeah, make sure I use proper English when I'm quoting the Lord. <laughs> if you hadn't done what you had done, if you had done the right thing, he wouldn't have been in that place at all. And so... Uh, it, it hit me. It hit me like a ton of bricks, and I, I actually fell to my knees next to my bed, asked God to forgive me, and I made the choice. I made the decision to forgive Randy as well. And this weight went off of me. I didn't even know I was carrying, and it, it just it was just lifted, and all of a sudden, everything looked different. And I knew um, maybe they weren't going to review me for two years, but I'm going to go home. I'm going to go home in two years. This was whatever, this was a part of what God wanted me to learn. And so um, everything, as I said, w was different. A couple of days later, I get this idea that I should write a letter to Randy. And I'm praying and I'm asking the Lord, well, what is this? How do you want me to do it? And he said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to write the letter to Randy. I want you to write it as if your wife is writing it. I want you to send it to your wife. I want you to have her rewrite it in her handwriting, have her sign it, and have her send it to Randy. And I said, that sounds like the same thing that got me in here. <laughs> so I did have a lot of doubt on was that really the voice of the Lord or was that just me, some goofy idea. So I decided to follow through with it. I sent it to Susan. Uh, she got it in the mail. She read through it. We talked on the phone. She said, this letter's amazing. You have articulated so well the things that have been on my heart and the things that I want to tell Randy, but you said it better than I could even say it, but let's do this. And so she uh, refilled it, you know, re rewrote it, signed it, sent it to Randy. And uh, Randy calls her up a couple days later 
and says, uh, uh, Susan, I got your letter. I appreciate what you wrote. Let's see if we can get Gary out of there. And she says, what do you mean? He said, well, didn't they give him a parole? Then they took it away. And she said, yes. Why did they take it away? She says, we have no idea. He said, well, I'll tell you what. Um, I'm going to make some phone calls. I mean, I'm the victim here. I should have some say in this. I'm going to make some phone calls on my side. I want you to call the parole board and see if you can find out what's, what happened. And uh, so um, she did. She called the parole board office, asked for the parole board president by name. And uh, the secretary said, I'm sorry, he's not here. And she said, well, uh, when will he be? And she said, he won't. He retired two weeks ago. And she said, well, well can uh, I talk to the new parole board president? And... Uh, she said, yeah, let me patch it through to Mrs. Jackson. Um, and uh, so long story short, they reviewed me again a couple of months later. And then March 19th, 1993, I was released. I always have a little trouble with that part right there, get a little choked up. Not because I got out of prison, although that's a very good thing. <laughs> but because um, I'm continually, even after all these years, and it was 25 years ago, after all these years, I'm still amazed how God was paying attention to me, how God was listening to me, that God was interacting with me. And um, I don't have time here this morning to go through all that happened. I mean, there's so many things that God did and how he restored. Um, but I got out of prison March 19th, 1993, and I, 1993, and I was, uh, uh, had, had a lot of restitution. I was over half a million dollars in debt. Uh, my restitution was $1,500 a month. The only job I could find was making $6.50 an hour. I had relationships that I had totally ruined, but over the course of the next six years, the debt was taken care of, the relationships were restored, and this fellow over here <laughs> hired me at the church um, and brought together all those things that even from 10 years old, you know, God was working. He was always working. So I just want to say this is an encouragement here this morning as we close. Um, God has a plan for you. He has a plan for you. And uh, it may not be ministry. It may not be doing like what I do, but it's a plan. And uh, I encourage you to pursue that. I really believe that this message today and any time I share my story affects two categories of people. Maybe all of you in some way to maybe, maybe think a little stronger about how you want to follow God and so forth. But uh, I believe there's a possibly a good possibility that there's one or two or ten or whatever of you who this morning, you love God. You've loved him for a long time, but you've been doing things your way. You've been doing like I was. You embraced him as Savior, but you haven't really embraced him in Lord, as Lord. And I just want to encourage you today that the Lord would want to say to you, turn around. You're going the wrong way. I've got a better plan. And the second is... Uh, a, a group of people possibly where the Lord has spoken to you years ago, told you something he wanted you to do. He, had, he was working something. He gave you an idea, an inspiration, whatever. And for some reason, it just got away from you. It just slipped away. And the Lord wants to encourage you today that you're not too old and it's not too late. Um, I just want to pray for you this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your love for us. I thank you for everyone who's here. I was so overwhelmed this morning just being here. Having a chance to talk a little bit about you and me and uh, being here with Russ, thinking back 20 years ago how this guy 
believed in me when I didn't even believe in myself. And he walked me through a lot of healing. And I thank you for Russ. I thank you for Russ Walker, his influence in my life. And I thank you that he's here at this church doing whatever you've called him to do here. And I thank you for everybody who's here this morning. I thank you for the plans you have for their lives. And Lord, sometimes we get in our heads, it's got to be some kind of big thing. And usually what I do every week, I'm just sitting down talking to guys in jail and prison, just trying to encourage them to give their life to you, Lord. Just little stuff like that. But I know it's making a difference, and I know it's what you want me to do. And I pray that you would work in everyone here and what you want them to do. And uh, Lord, if uh, there's anybody here who also feels like they're led to do something in jails and prisons, maybe they don't even know anything about it, I pray that they would uh, just make that known to them. And anything, anything where it's us reaching out, anything where it's getting out of our comfort zone to, to reach others, Lord, that you would just stir that by your Holy Spirit in everyone here today. I just thank you for your faithfulness, and I pray your blessings on this church. I pray your blessings on each individual here, and that uh, we would all uh, be able to enjoy uh, our fellowship with you and our fellowship with one another as we endeavor to fulfill your work for the kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We're going to take communion here together, and as... Gary mentioned 1 Corinthians 13 says love is patient love is kind it does not envy it does not boast it is not proud it does not dishonor others it's not self-seeking it's not easily angered it keeps no record of wrongs love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth it always protects always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. You know, the reason why it's in there is because this is exactly what Jesus did for us. He doesn't, he doesn't treat us the way that we deserve. He doesn't hold our wrongs against us. This is the good news of the gospel that we get to celebrate here. And so we're going to do communion here together, and this is an invitation. I say this almost every Sunday, that when you think of what this table is, it's a question. Because Jesus said on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and gave thanks and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then after the supper, he took the cup and he said, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for you. Do this. As often as you come together, do this in remembrance of me. It's a question because he says, I give you my life, and I will sacrifice my life for you. I forgive you. The question is, will you give him your life? And when we take communion, we're answering that question. We're saying, thank you, Jesus, for what you have done for me. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for not holding my mistakes against me. Thank you for not treating me the way I deserve. And I want to do that as well. I give you my life. And I want to love the way that you love. I want to forgive those who have hurt me. The Bible describes in that passage that 
at this moment, we're actually supposed to consider how we're living our life. We're supposed to consider those that even hurt us and, and done us wrong. And so maybe even in the story that Gary shared, his life, that maybe God's putting somebody in your heart right now that you know you're holding something against. And right here and right now, just take that moment to make a decision to forgive. Say, God, all right, I forgive. I release this person. I'm not going to hold this against them anymore. God, as you have forgiven me, I want to forgive these people in my life. There's two stations in front of here, and how we do this around here is that We'll start in the front row and go all the way back. You'll exit on your right, and you'll circle around, take a piece of bread, dip it in the juice, and then circle back around into your aisle. And just take that, that moment here. You don't have to be a member of this church to participate with this. This is not something that we do or initiate as a church. This is something Jesus set before us. So if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, or if you have never made that decision, you can do that right now. It's something about Gary's story maybe touched your heart. You, maybe you know about him but you've never really given your life to him. Maybe you've never really made him Lord, driver, leader of your life. The Bible says if you'll confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For all who confess his name, who call the name of the Lord, shall be saved. That's as simple as it is. You can make the decision right now and say, Jesus, I, I give you my life. And so let's do this here together. If you'll stand and just circle around going from the front row back.